Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. My name is Aaron, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And if it's your first time or hundredth time, we really want to welcome you to uh, our church today. Uh, we've been going through a summer series on the most famous prayer ever uttered, uh, from churches all the way to football locker rooms, and that is the Lord's Prayer. And one of the questions that I've asked myself uh, this week is, now that we're concluding our series on the Lord's Prayer, I think I've learned a lot about the contents of the Lord's Prayer, but uh, has the series at all helped me qualitatively and quantitatively pray better? And I am curious, has this sermon series at all helped you qualitatively and quantitatively pray better? And if I'm honest with myself, uh, I think it has a little bit, uh, but at the same time, I think I've also realized that prayer, even still, uh, is an uphill battle. Uh, it's not easy to pray, is it? Uh, it is almost like, uh, prayer is almost like that green vegetable that you're told to eat as a kid. You know it's good for you, but you don't really want to eat it. Uh, and study after study shows that prayer is good for us. Uh, both non-religious and religious people could agree on that, but still we have this severe allergy uh, towards prayer. And there are all sorts of good reasons why. We're busy, we're tired, um, we have stuff to do, we live very hurried lives. Uh, but I think there's a deeper reason for why we have an allergy uh, for prayer. And John Calvin says that the number one reason why we do not pray is because we are devoid of awe. We are desensitized to God. And because our view of God is so minuscule, our prayer lives uh, tend to be minuscule as well. And a part of that is understandable because we live in this physical material universe, and this is all that we see, and God is a spirit who we can't see, so how are we supposed to stand in awe or be sensitive to something that we can't see at all? And yet when you take a look at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, what is the very first phrase of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven. And what this phrase in the Lord's Prayer is doing is this, even though we live in this physical material universe, we do not live in a physical material universe where the lid is tightly shut but we live in a physical material universe where the lid is open, our Father who art in heaven. And so what this prayer is trying to do is help us regain a sense of awe and wonder about who God is. And so it's no coincidence that the Lord's Prayer begins by using the word your three times. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because there is nothing better, uh, nothing that helps us more uh, gain a sense of awe than prayer and praise. 
And so the beginning part of the Lord's Prayer begins with all about praising God. Your, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, it shifts to us, and it uses the word us three times. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. And so it begins with prayer and praise to God to help us capture a sense of wonder about who God is, and then it shifts to our needs. And then at the very end of the Lord's Prayer, it closes with praise and prayer again by using the word your. Yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. Or does it? When you take a look at our passage again in Matthew chapter 6, the phrase, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory is conspicuously absent. And it is not only absent in Matthew chapter 6, but it is also absent in Luke chapter 11, the only other place where the Lord's Prayer is found. And one of the reasons why the last phrase of the Lord's Prayer that we typically recite is absent in Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11 is because in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, that phrase, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory forever, is absent. That phrase, or what we call a doxology or praise, dox is glory, logia is to speak of, to, so, to speak of glory or praise. The earliest uh, uh, manuscripts that we have with this phrase is found in something called the Didache, which dates all the way to uh, 75 to 90 AD. So not that long after the death of Jesus. Certainly the disciples were still alive around this time as well. Nevertheless, in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, that phrase is completely absent. So here's a question. So why do we recite this in the Lord's Prayer if it's not found in the earliest manuscripts? Two reasons. Number one, if you take a look at the Psalms and Jewish prayers as a whole, it typically ends with some kind of doxology or praise to God. And number two, when you take a look at Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11, it does seem like this prayer ends very, very abruptly. So it's very possible that uh, the phrase, yours is the kingdom, power, and glory, is something that Jesus said. But even if it's not something that Jesus said himself, throughout church history, Christians have always included this doxological ending in the Lord's Prayer. And so that's why we're going to be taking a look at it today. And so I want us to, for this morning, just meditate a little bit on the concepts of kingdom, power, glory, and what forever and ever actually means. Okay, so the first thing I want us to think about a little bit is the concept of the kingdom. Now, Jesus talked about the kingdom perhaps more than anything else. And so for us to exhaustively talk about the kingdom in one sermon, let alone in one point in one sermon, is an impossible task. However, uh, I do like what the Australian theologian Graham Goldsworthy, I like how he defined the kingdom when he said that the kingdom is three things. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. That's a good definition of what the kingdom of God is like. And yet at the same time, when you read the Bible, it also says that we are not only God's people, but that we're enemies with God. It not only says that this world is something that he made, that this is his place, but at the same time, uh, that we live in enemy territory and that this world is completely broken. 
and that God rules everything everywhere, and yet at the same time, his rule is kind of broken. I was listening to a uh, lecture by an Oxford theologian last week uh, named uh, Alistair McGrath, and the title of his lecture was, If Humans Are So Great, Why Is the World Such a Mess? And his thesis was, the world is a mess because we're a mess. The world is broken because we are broken. And there's copious amounts of evidence of this, uh, isn't there? And so whether it's what's happening uh, right now in our borders, uh, the protests and riots that are seemingly happening on every continent in the world, uh, if you're a female, you have one out of four chances of being sexually abused in your life. That terrifies me as a father with two girls. If you're a male, you have a one out of six chance of being sexually abused in your life. Suicide up, anxiety up, loneliness up, depression up, discontentment up. So it's no coincidence that on December 2nd, 2015, that 14 people were gunned down to death. 22 more people were injured in a mass shooting in San Bernardino, California. And after this mass shooting on Twitter, it was the typical response, prayers and thoughts, or thoughts and prayers. What was atypical was the response uh, in a uh, uh, newspaper called the New York Daily News the next day, where on the front front cover of the New York Daily News, it said, not thoughts and prayers, but it said, God isn't fixing this. And this, of course, is the Epicurean riddle that people have been wrestling with forever. If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he fix everything that's messed up with this world? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he do this? If he is all-powerful and doesn't fix this messed up world, it must mean that he is not good. He might be all-powerful, but he's not all-good. And if he is good, but he chooses not to fix up this messed world, if he is good, it, means, it must mean that he's not all-powerful then. So it's one or the other. He's all-powerful but not good. He's good or, and not all-powerful, but he can't possibly be both. Otherwise, how do you explain the mess that we live in today? This is the Epicurean riddle that people have been wrestling with for centuries. And yet when we take a look at the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. What this last line is suggesting is that one day, God is going to fix all things. That one day, he's going to fix everything that is completely broken uh, with the world that we live in today. When you think about ancient and modern stories about kings and kingdoms, almost all ancient stories and modern stories about kings and kingdoms go something like this. There was once a great king, And because this king was ruling the land, the kingdom flourished and thrived and everything blossomed. And then one day the king was captured or the king was assassinated and lesser kings usurped his throne. And as a result, the kingdom or the land uh, was sort of deconstructed into a dystopia. But one day the king is going to come back again or a new king that resembles the old king. And they're going to resurrect the kingdom and restore the kingdom again. Almost every ancient story and modern story about kings and kingdoms is like that. I'll give you an example. C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, book, uh, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a lion named Aslan who rules, who's a great king who rules Narnia. 
And so as a result, Narnia flourishes and thrives and everything blossoms. And then for a period of time, a long period of time, Aslan is absent. And this wicked witch takes over Narnia. And as a result, Narnia now is completely frozen over and everything is dead. But some of the inhabitants, the creatures in Narnia, still believe that Aslan is going to come back again, that there is going to be the return of the king. And when the king comes back, he's going to restore everything about Narnia once again. He's going to fix everything that's broken. Now, when we hear stories like that, why is there a part of us that sort of resonates with these stories? Why do we have this fascination with uh, kings and kingdoms? Why this fascination with royal weddings? Why this fascination with thrones? Why do we have that fascination? Why, does, why, why do we resonate with those things? J.R.R. Tolkien, who often wrote about imaginary lands like the Shire and Middle Earth, one of the reasons why he says that we resonate with these kinds of stories is because there's a memory trace in us. There's something about us that remembers what once was. That this world in its current state, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. There's something about this world that needs to be fixed. And Tolkien, in one of his letters that I recently read to his son Christopher, he tells Christopher that, you know, he writes about all these imaginary lands like the Shire, Middle Earth, but he tells Christopher that the reason why these stories resonate within us is because of this memory trace that we have of Eden that we all long for Eden, and that our feet are still soaked with the dew of Eden. And what do we see in Eden? God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. But what happens? Adam and Eve bite of the fruit, they, they wanna usurp God's throne, and as a result, they're exiled east of Eden, and the world and history is never the same again. And as a result, instead of seeking God's kingdom, what we invariably do now is seek our own, where we choose to be kings and queens of our own little world. And let me, let me uh, describe for you how that happens in our daily lifestyle. Uh, if you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, I wanna read you something from Tony Schwartz who wrote an article called The Enduring Hunt for Personal Value uh, in the New York Times. And Schwartz talks about how we build our own little kingdoms, and he says this, why does Michael Phelps keep returning to a brutal training regimen in the pool long after he's achieved every imaginable accolade as a swimmer? Why do men who have earned hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions, work relentlessly to earn even more? long after it could possibly make any material difference in their lives? Why does a substantial group of politicians with no remote chance of being elected president feel compelled to traverse the uh, country campaigning 18 hours a day for more than two years? As little as these varied people have in common, their sh shared core hunger is for value. We each want desperately to matter to feel a sense of worthiness. And so what Schwartz is saying here is that we all desire value and the way that we garner a sense of value is by building our own little kingdoms. And you know what? We will use anyone and use anything, even God, to build our own little kingdoms. 
And one of the ways that we use God to even build our kingdoms is the way that we pray. Do you know that even when we pray, oftentimes we use God as a means to an end rather than an end in and of himself? God is a means. The end, our happiness. God is a means. The end, whatever it is that I really, really, really want out of life. God is a means. The end, finally getting married. Oftentimes we use God as a means to an end rather than seeing him as the end in and of, its, in and of itself. And if he doesn't give us what we want, then we're done. This prayer thing, it doesn't really work. And so oftentimes if we have a non-existent prayer life or if our prayer life is often truncated and very thin, it means that we're using him as a means, not in the end in and of himself. But prayer is not just about getting something, but more importantly, it's about getting someone. It's not just about getting things. It's about getting someone. I was listening to, uh, I was watching the full interview uh, this past week of uh, Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert. And uh, if you don't know anything about their personal lives, Anderson Cooper lost his father at the age of 10. And just recently, just a few weeks ago, he lost his mother. Stephen Colbert, if you don't know anything about his own life, his father and two brothers uh, died in a plane accident when he was only 10. And I'll never forget what Colbert said. He said that after his father and two brothers died in the plane accident, he said that ordinary concerns of childhood suddenly disappeared. He said that if that plane accident didn't happen, that he would have been a completely different person. He would have been Stefan Colbert instead of Stephen Colbert. But there was something about this thing that changed him. And together they talk about their pain and suffering together. And although I wish I could sort of write the entire manuscript for you uh, in this 40-minute interview, I did want to re read to you something very briefly that they said that struck me on the first page of your bulletin. And Anderson Cooper uh, asked Stephen Colbert, you told an interviewer what punishments of God are not gifts. Do you really believe that? And Colbert says, yes, it's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. I don't want it to have happened. I want it to not have happened. But if you are grateful for your life, and I'm not always, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose. And what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply and to understand what it's like to be a human being. It's about the fullness of your humanity. What's the point of being human if you can't be the most human you can be? I'm not saying the best human you can be, but the most human you can be. And that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful for the things I wish hadn't happened because they are a gift. And in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, that you're really not alone. God does it too. And what Colbert is saying in a very non-religious way, what Colbert is saying is that the point of life is not just to be happy, but the point of life is to be holy, to be more like God. And what is God like? In the Christian tradition, God is like he is a suffering God. 
And if we want to be more holy or be more like God, why would we be exempt from suffering ourselves? Now, this might surprise some of you who have, uh, are new to Christianity or new to the church because if you take a look at any other religion, God doesn't suffer. I mean, the idea of Allah uh, suffering in Islam, I mean, that is just completely blasphemous. So how in the world in Christianity, why in the world would God subject himself to suffering? Why would he do something like that? And the reason for that is because Jesus is a different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom. And what is he like? Well, let me read for us the final quote uh, from Glenn Scrivener's book, 321. And this is what he says about Jesus. This traveling preacher never graduated from the recognized academies. He never accepted political office. He never entered religious orders. He never joined the military. He never founded a school. He never fathered a dynasty. He never wrote a book. He never led an army. He never had an ounce of earthly power. He was butchered as a blasphemer in his 30s. Yet today, he commands more allegiance than any human has or could. Billions call him Lord. Not bad for a kid born in a shed. What Scrivener is saying is that Jesus is a different kind of king of a different kind of kingdom. Well, what is he like? Jesus is not the kind of king that conquers his enemies by shedding their blood, but he is the kind of king that conquers his enemies by shedding his own blood. Now, why in the world would a king shed his own blood? Why in, the, why in the world would a king sacrifice himself? And the reason for that is because Jesus' main mission was not to sit on a throne, but his main mission was to hang on a cross. Why? To die for our sins. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the way that he does that, and the reason why he dies, is so that we could get eternal life and live forever. You know, in the game of chess, one of the main strategies in the game of chess is to protect your king at all costs because if your king is captured, the game is over. And Jesus is the kind of king that willingly is captured and voluntarily lays down his life so that the game would not be over for us but so that we could have eternal life. Now, when we talk about things like eternity or whatever forever and ever means a part of it is hard for us to understand what that looks like or to even think about that and one of the reasons for that is because we are constantly surrounded by things that die and expire when we go to the grocery store to buy a carton of milk what's on there what's stamped on there an expiration date it spoils our clothes also have an expiration date the colors fade we get holes in our clothes even the sun has an expiration date but most tragically of all, we, we have an expiration date on us as well. And yet when we take a look at the closing line of the doxology, it says yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory uh, forever and ever. There is something about eternity uh, that is here. And so even though everything around us ex uh, uh, expires and spoils away, there's a part of us, innate part of us that doesn't like that. We want things to last forever. We want our family to last forever, our friends, our nostalgic experiences to last forever. And the reason for that is because of the memory trace. There's something in us that remembers that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be different. 
and something is supposed to last forever uh, than it is right now. And this is the reason why Jesus came. He not only came to meet our daily needs by giving us our daily bread, but the reason why Jesus came is to meet our forever needs in eternity. And so I want to encourage you, for those of you in particular who are going through a difficult season of your life right now, and I know that some of you are, one way of approaching the difficult seasons of your life is to begin each day with the ending in mind. Here's what I mean. Where we'll be 50 years from now is very uncertain. Where we'll be 500 years from now is certain. Begin each day with the ending in mind that all of life, that the narrative that we're in is building towards a redemptive climax, uh, climax in history where one day something like this on earth as it is in heaven is going to happen, that these two distinct places are going to become one and that there is going to be a forever kingdom. Uh, I like what John Newton, the uh, author of Amazing Grace, uh, once said when he said, there is only one political maxim which comforts me. And Newton says, the Lord reigns. That is the only thing that comforts me. And when we say yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, that is what we are saying, the Lord reigns. And because he reigns, one day this frozen Narnia and our experiences in this frozen Narnia are gonna be turned upside down and he's going to make everything wrong right again. Well, that's all I got. I do wanna close with a couple applications as we finish uh, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I do like what Tim Keller once said uh, when he said, who dares to wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water without getting their heads chopped off? The only person that would dare to wake up a king at 3 a.m. in the morning for a cup of water is a king's son or daughter. Do you not know that God is not only a great king, but he is our father? And you can wake him up anytime you want to. So why in the world would you not have used the access that you have with him? You know, one day we are going to stand before God and I promise you the number one thing that we're all going to be thinking of is this, why in the world did I not talk to you more? Why in the world did I have such a thin view of prayer? Had I known how great you were or are, I would have talked to you a lot more. There is nothing that moves a parent more than their child's cry. So whatever you are going through, cry out to God. You know, we get annoyed and bothered when people blitz us with texts and emails or call us all the time. We get annoyed and bothered from all the spam that we get. But the only thing that troubles God is that we do not come to him at all. He is certainly not troubled by the fact that we come to him too much. The greatest tragedy in life is not unanswered prayer, but it's unoffered prayer. Why in the world would we not pray, uh, pray more if God is who he really is? And prayer is one of the main ways that we treat God as God, a king as a king. And the second and last thing that I will say is that if you want to develop a healthy prayer life, 
you must learn to befriend silence. You must learn how to normalize boredom. Now, our culture offers a lot of good things, and our culture offers a lot of bad things. One of the bad things that our city in particular offers and trains us and disciples us with is living a very busy and hurried life. And so if you want to be a follower of Jesus today in our city, you must learn to live a contrarian life. So if our culture, the bad stuff of our culture is going this way, you have to learn how to go this way against the grain. Learn how to befriend silence. Learn how to normalize boredom in your life without having this tick to always check your phone. It's the only way that we can follow Jesus today by living some kind of contrarian life uh, where we follow him against the tide of our uh, culture. If you can do Whole30, keto, paleo, yoga, and check your fantasy uh, scores like a Wall Street trader, you can pray. The issue isn't prayer, it's our priorities. And prayer is the main way of treating God as God, a king who deserves to sit on the throne of all of our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, the idea that Your kingdom is going to come and its full consummation is something that seems like a fairy tale and something that is far distant. But help us to be like the beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia who did not live like a functional agnostic or atheist but really, really believed that Aslan was going to come back again and to restore all things. Help us to have the faith like a beaver to truly, truly believe Uh, that the end is nigh. And God, we thank you that the way that you display your power and your glory is through your weakness, not through your strength by dying on a cross. And it is my prayer that as we live each day, that we too would walk with a limp and to remember that weakness is the way as we follow a weak king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.